This episode of the 343 podcast is supported by Bounce Athletics. Bounce Athletics is offering you an additional 10% discount because they know that you are serious about high-quality soccer products if you are listening to this show. Training balls from Bounce Athletics can be customized with your logo and your color scheme and will only cost you about $15 to $20 per ball. And if you compare similar textured training balls from Nike, Adidas, or Select, those would be in the $50 to $60 range. Now, I've personally tested the balls from Bounce Athletics. They feel great. They look great. They roll great. They hold air, which is super important. They are legit, and I highly recommend them. To top everything off, Bounce Athletics will send you complimentary mock-ups of what your balls will look like with your logo on them. Just email your logo to info at Bounce Athletics to begin the order process. And remember to mention 343 so you get that additional 10% discount when you place your order. This is the 343 Podcast. I'm your host, John Pronich. Welcome to the show. Mike Waitala is the executive editor of Soccer America. He is also a coach, a referee, and a soccer dad. I wanted to get to know Mike, who happens to be the man behind some of the most powerful articles written about American soccer. So I reached out to him, and he was happy to answer all of my questions and share some additional stories about his incredible adventures through American soccer over the course of a few decades. In this episode, we discuss one of his very first interviews with Ziggy Schmidt, We also talk about how he chooses stories to cover and if anybody tells him not to cover something. And we wrapped everything up with his thoughts on soccer in his community and American soccer in general. You can find Mike on Twitter and you can also find all of his work on SoccerAmerica.com. I've linked to both of those in the write-up of this podcast that you can find on 343coaching.com. If you enjoy this episode, make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, uh, there's probably a couple more, but wherever you're listening to it, you can always subscribe to it there. Uh, give it a five-star rating if you really enjoy it. And if you really would like to support the 343 podcast, the best way to do that is by joining the 343 Premium Coaching Membership Program. If you are not already a member, you are missing out on the best online coaching education program, period. I've been a member since the program launched, and during that time, I've been able to learn about possession-based soccer, and I've been able to add value to my teams and to my own personal education. But best of all, I've been able to do it without getting confused or bogged down or distracted by excess or unnecessary information. Because the 343 membership program teaches you a proven possession-based methodology, which comes directly from one of the best coaches in American soccer. Videos of real games and training sessions help you learn how to coach possession soccer. And you also get 24-7 online access to ebooks, audio lessons, recorded classroom presentations, on-field clinics, and members-only forums for networking and sharing ideas with other 343 coaches. You get all of that for just $295, which is an incredible deal and a fraction of the price of what other coaching education courses cost. To find more information and to look at more of the benefits of the program, you can visit 343coaching.com. Once again, that is 343coaching.com. All right, let's get into this episode of the 343 podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoy listening to this chat with Mike Waitala.
so it it is already recording. If there's something that uh, that you say or, or we get into that you don't want to go out, uh, just let me know, and I can either edit that out or we can do a retake, whatever. Um, but the uh, the the reason for for wanting to interview you, we kind of talked last week about it. Um, but I I really want to get to know like the making of a Soccer America story and and the process that you go through and and even like how you conduct an interview I think is is interesting because Soccer America and, and your story specifically are are different than what most people have access to are are it's just it's just different type of coverage than you know the traditional MLS network or US Soccer network and I find that very intriguing and I appreciate it number 1 and I think people would be interested in learning more about, you know, what you guys do, how you guys do it and why you guys do it. So that was, that was kind of the idea of wanting to interview. You. Yeah. Well, thanks for the compliment. Um, you know, it's interesting because when you do something for a long time and, you know, I work with Paul Kennedy who I've worked with for, for decades. Um, not that I'm that old, I'm, I'm, I'm turning 55 soon, but, um, you know, when you do something for a long time, you sometimes don't step back and think about, the process because it becomes somewhat natural, but that's why I think this is a, you know, really interesting question. And it brings me back to something that happened recently. I was looking through old soccer Americas and soccer America has been around since 1971. And I found these 1975 soccer America editions. And we had articles about girls soccer. Um, we had an article about um, a lawsuit that forced the, uh, California Youth Soccer Association to allow girls to play, and and uh, we cover. And then when I came aboard in the '80s, uh, we staffed U17 uh, World Cups. Our columnist Paul Gardner went to U17 World Cups um, frequently, and basically everyone for a very long period of time. One of my first big trips was to Saudi Arabia. Uh, for the 1989 U20 World Cup, where the U.S. finished fourth. And what I'm getting around to is that even before I was there and ever since Soccer America started, I think we've always tried to look at the whole picture. Some of that wasn't by choice because when it started by Clay Burling in 1971, um, you know, soccer was just kind of starting in most cities in America and most at most levels. You had college soccer obviously been around, you had ethnic leagues. But if you were going to cover soccer, you had to look at everything that was going on in the United States and internationally. Because if someone's interested in soccer in the United States, they have to also pay attention to what's going on um, in the rest of the world. So coming back to your your question, I think that's kind of how we start out with is looking at whenever we address a topic in the back of our minds are all the other issues that might affect that. And Something that jumps out to me right away is that a lot of times people just for whatever reason think that soccer in America started and, and soccer in America, so not soccer America, but um, soccer in the United States started in 1994 or in some cases 1996. And, and so what you just highlighted is that you guys started in 1971. And that is if I, I don't remember exactly when NASL started, but like that's does that predate NASL as well? Well, the NASL started in '67, '68 uh, when they merged. Um, so, and the, and Clay Burling, the founder, he got the idea to <laughs> he got into soccer because he took uh, his family to an Oakland Stompers game. Um, so, yeah, you know that that was part of it. And but it's a really good point, and that it is an interesting history. And you have a lot of people from the era that influenced 
you know, what's going on now. Um, and in a way, if you compare it to the rest of the world, though, it still is kind of a young sport. You know, if you talk about MLS um, having launched in 96 compared to leagues in other countries, we had the NASL, obviously, the Pele Beckenbauer League, where, um, you know, I think that really spread the game. That was hugely important and then folded in, in, in 84. So you had that decade, 12 years, a dozen years where you didn't have a top level professional league. What what brought you to Soccer America? How did you um, how did you get yourself into a position of, of covering soccer full time? It sounds like, you know, from from the 80s on like that's you know, reporting about soccer is not uh, a luxurious job for a lot of people. Uh, I'm me speaking from my own experience. Yeah. Um, but you've, you've seemed to make a, you know, a, a, a decades long career out of it. Yeah, I was very, very, very lucky. So I was a soccer player at uh, UC Berkeley at Cal. And I, um, you know, I grew up with a sport. My parents are originally from Germany. My grandparents would send me clippings of German newspapers and um, magazines. And we would visit Germany and I was soccer crazy. And I, I kind of grew up in the boom in the 70s and uh, when youth soccer was spreading. And when I was at Cal, and my soccer career was waning. I started writing for the Daily Californian about I, I covered the soccer team. I was actually still on the team because I thought I was going to get cut um, after I had offered to write the articles. So I spent a season where I would uh, change my clothes right after the game and interview the other coach. But anyway, <laughs> uh, yeah, I interviewed Ziggy Schmidt that way. I remember that because Cal beat uh, – I didn't play a minute, but uh, Cal beat UCLA 3-2 that day. Um but so I was writing, I was covering Cal when they got into the top 20 and were doing very, very well. And Soccer America back then used an army of freelance writers from all over the country, saw my byline in the Daily Californian, Soccer America also being in Berkeley. I started freelancing for them, got a summer internship, and a year and a half before I graduated, I was already working as a part-time editor. So it was just very, very lucky because I had an interest in journalism since I would say high school, maybe even earlier, and um, an uh, incredible interest in soccer. I mean, that was my sport. I was crazy about soccer. So I was just so lucky that those two overlapped, in a, you know, <laughs> geographically and in every other way. One of the things I just wrote down is you mentioned an army of freelance writers. And, you know, that was, again, in the mid-80s. And you fast forward, you know, about 30 years. And it's still the same. It, it's still the same thing. Uh, you you look at something like the athletic that that kind of just that popped up last year, and that is an army of freelance writers, and, and so you know it hasn't, you know the, the the landscape I guess of like independent journalism hasn't changed too much when it comes to soccer, and obviously you guys are still doing great work too. So um, yeah, that's a it's that it's tricky because the history of media in general in the United States has been so. I guess disrupted is the word they use nowadays. But um, so, you know, we had a weekly soccer magazine that for a long time was the only soccer information out there. Um, and then the Internet came, which meant that people can follow soccer in all kinds of ways. Television coverage increased. So, you know, there are adjustments to be made by by us and everybody else and how we cover it. Um, but that's interesting, too, because you reminded me, I, we recently I recently interviewed Stephen Goff of The Washington Post, who I found interesting because. You know, there's no, not he's the longest serving newspaper soccer reporter um, at the same paper right now in the United States. 
And it reminded me of how progressive the Washington Post was in the 80s. And there was a, you know, USA Today was doing that as well. Um, it took a long time, but I would say you mentioned the 94 World Cup. It was around the 90s where soccer became mainstream. It really changed um you know, the way soccer was perceived and, and, and covered and, and then the internet came. So, you know, now you have all kinds of soccer coverage in different kinds of ways, the traditional media, social media, you know, podcasts. It's, it's pretty amazing how much soccer coverage there is. Yeah, anybody with an opinion can put it out there now. I get, I get that comment thrown at me all the time. <laughs> well, you know, that's, you know, that's like in everything, not just soccer and, and, and politics and sports and all that. Um, and 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 it's like it's like so many things. There's pluses and minuses. I think one thing that we pride ourselves um, on in Soccer America, and, and we do do opinion pieces, but you know we really try hard to 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 check our facts, to you know to get the other side if we're criticizing someone, um, you know to try and be as thorough as possible. Um, which for all media outlets is a challenge because of the. Um, you know, the way the news cycle works, which is every three minutes. Or so. <laughs> yeah. so that actually brings me to a question that I really wanted to ask you. And I think that people would be very interested in learning a little bit about the actual process. So you mentioned fact checking and that that is an interesting process for a lot of media members. And I'm just curious if you can maybe explain, you know, to listeners who aren't part of the soccer media, they're, they're just consumers of the content. What what is fact checking? How do you do it, and and why is it so important to uh, to an outlet like Soccer America? Well, there's some there are some things that would have to do with um, you know just your general coverage. Let's say you're you're doing a feature story, and someone tells you they played for this or that team, and, and we double check. In the olden days, we probably had the best soccer library in the in the country, and we had every Rothmans, which was a brilliant British. Uh, yearbook that had every single player who ever played a game in Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, or England. So if someone told us they had played for some team or coached some team in England, we could check that. You know, now other now it's easier for everybody else to do that thanks to the internet. Um, and then you have the other issues that may be more, um, you know, more more controversial. So if you know if I hear something that I think the federation is doing wrong or is on the wrong track, you know, I will contact the U S soccer federation to confirm, to get, you know, to find out if it's true, to find out what the reaction is, you know, just in case the rumor's not true or, you know, so it, it's kind of a basic, basic kind of thing. Um, you know, just to kind of, just, just, just to double check and make sure. So, you know, you don't fly off the handle if, if you're not sure about the facts. Yeah. Um, how, uh, how do people react to that? When you when you call in with, hey, I heard this in the grapevine, true or not? Yeah, it depends. I mean, if it's uh, usually they're, they're pretty cooperative as far as uh, explaining or not explaining, or um, you know, I mean, they're the the big issue I tried to figure out over the last year was uh, the percentage of Latino coaches who have A, B, and C licenses and. and you know, I, I asked that. I, I I had gauged it by just estimating and looking through lists of development academy coaches. I tried. I I came up with a number of around five or six percent, an awfully low number. And I asked the federation on you know on the record interview, and also 
through email a number of times whether they could confirm whether that number is so low because it's absurd, right? That you would only have, you know, five or six percent Latino coaches at the at the higher levels of licenses. Their answer was they did not know. So <laughs> you can make a, you know, you can decide what does that mean? Do they really not know? Um, can you know you can estimate somewhat by last names you can survey your coaches uh, if you're a major organization in the united states with a diverse population especially when one of those communities is heavily involved in soccer i would think you would try and figure out how they're represented but um you know that was our answer so that's what we went with that was what they were saying on the record and it makes me believe that um that figure is uh, disturbingly low how how do you you kind of and you kind of touched on it uh, with the first answer, and I, I kind of asked it in in the first question. But how do you decide on doing a, a story, and, and what's the process like for for you know actually giving that story its framework when it comes to something like coaching education and yeah and things um, like that. It's 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 you know it's a discussion between um, Paul Kennedy, the editor in chief. Um, and, uh, you know, we have some freelance writers, Paul Gardner, who's a longtime columnist uh, for Soccer America, who I consult. Um, you know, it's a, it's a matter of, I think it's similar to most media outlets where you kind of have a short-term and a long-term plan of what you're planning to cover. Some news might break and that will tweak what your, long, what, what your coverage is going to be like. Um, and, you know, it's not super easy because, you know, we produce um, two e-letters a day, Soccer America Daily in the morning and in the evening so we've got a lot of news coverage while at the same time we're trying to make sure that we keep track of you know important issues such as recently the vacancies of the youth youth national team programs so it's a matter of discussion and analysis and um and making phone calls and 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 talking to to contacts people you know to try and find out what's what are the issues and and obviously we you know we track social media very as closely as we possibly can you know i i'm not um necessarily always happy that there's so much um you know vitriol on the social media and, and really harsh criticism of, of things but on the other hand the positive there is that it does help you gather a lot of information sometimes with a grain of salt but um it makes it um you know easier to really get a somewhat of a sense of what the issues are out there what people feel about them rightly or wrongly or in a lot of times uh, they do alert you to certain things that are going on that, you know, as as our as a as a soccer media outlet that we that we want to make sure we know about and cover if it's if it's something we should cover. Hey, sit tight. We are going to hear a quick message from our sponsor, Bounce Athletics. Bounce Athletics are offering you an additional ten percent discount just for listening to this episode of the Three Four Three podcast. When I spoke to Zach, the co-founder of Bounce Athletics, he mentioned one of the most common problems that coaches and players and teams have when it comes to their training equipment. This is what he had to say. Finding goals that are portable, um, that can be moved from environment to environment quickly and perform just as well on grass as they do on turf as they do on hardwood or, or wherever you're at. Thankfully, that problem has been solved thanks to the Dynamo goals made by Bounce Athletics. They have revolutionized people's training sessions. For those that don't know, they're a three by five, all aluminum frame. They fold flat in like five seconds and they you pop them back up and 
a couple seconds. The moment I saw the Dynamo goals in action, I was totally convinced that these were the best goals on the market. And since using the Dynamo goals, I haven't even touched the other goals that I have had for years. And I was curious about who else was already using these. So I asked Zach, and here's what he had to say. Everything from recreational programs that are using them for their 3v3 and 4v4 to college and pro teams that have 20 of them. 343 listeners get an additional 10% discount when you mention the 343 podcast. Just email info at Bounce Athletics to begin the order process. All right, let's get back to the show. I want to make sure I respond with something that came to mind last week or the week before Kyle Martino posted something and, and I still don't know who it's about. I don't think anybody knows who who's it's about or who it's about, but you know, posted something about, Oh, don't just be a, a, a talker. Like you have to actually like get your, get your hands dirty and, and do the work. If you want to be considered a change agent, something along those lines, I can't remember the, the exact quote, but basically what he was trying to do is, is tell somebody or a group of people to, to not, um, you know, be, be loud on Twitter and, or be loud on social media. And so I took kind of issue with that because a lot of times that's the only voice that people have. That's the only instrument that people have to make noise or to make their change. And what I've said for a long time is that, uh, people should be noisy. And, and, you know, if, if enough people are noisy about something, it catches the attention of someone like you or something or people like soccer America or the athletic or Stephen Goff or whoever. And, and that's what gives a, a, a bigger publication, a, a somebody with a bigger instrument, uh, the idea to, to look into something like that. And if it has legs, then, then they're going to run with it. And I think that that's, that's really important. And like you, uh, I, I feel the same way. I don't enjoy the, the negativity aspect when it comes to social media. I think that it gets a little out of control sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I may even contribute to that sometimes too. And I apologize, but, um, but but I do think that you know the the noisemakers on social media are very very valuable people, and I, I don't I don't know how else to describe how else to describe that and, and how to encourage people to do it properly. But I do think that they that the the conversations on social media are making a massive impact on how the game is covered and talked about. Yeah, I mean it, it reminds me of when social media was really starting off, and you know someone who's been around as long as I have. Um, I remember the frustration of mainstream media ignoring important soccer issues in such an incredibly, you know, ridiculous way when you have this sport that had grown so much, you know, probably the second most popular participation sport in the United States, an international sport that in the United States for a couple decades now, you could put on an international game that would get a bigger crowd in the United States than it would get anywhere else in the world. And what social media uh, enabled was to not have to rely on certain mainstream media that was blind to soccer because now the information could get out there through soccer people. And as far as the criticism of, of it, I, I agree with you that, uh, you know, that's a really important part about social media for people to, you know, to complain about what they think they should complain about. Um, I guess when I was a little bit discouraged or, you know, during the, 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 the time after the U.S. failed to qualify and the elections and all that, I, I thought that things had gotten, again, a lot of it was fantastic. I mean, the issue, for example, of 
the Latino communities, you know, contributions and, and, and potential and the, and the neglect. Uh, that had been something we've been writing about for years. Paul Gardner is the first person who for, you know, for decades ago had written about the, the Hispanic issue in the United States. That became one of the forefronts of discussions. So driven by social media in, in, in many ways. And that that's fantastic. What I found a little bit discouraging was the criticism, the sort of idea that, oh, everybody involved in soccer before was getting it wrong because we failed to qualify for the World Cup, where even a number of the people who had made mistakes and maybe he didn't 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 succeed or, or failed had a history of actually doing a lot of good things. And, you know, you can criticize someone without saying that they, they've been they've been useless or anything. But, um, yeah, no, I mean, for soccer, social media was fantastic in the United States, especially because you had this young generation that I think was attracted to soccer for a lot of the reasons that, that I am. And, and that's the global aspect and the internationalism of it. Um, and, and that wasn't really appreciated so much by many mainstream outlets who were, you know, probably still run by cigar chomping editors who like boxing, horse racing and baseball. And now those guys didn't matter anymore because this new generation embraced the sport, wrote about it, followed it, um, you know, became fans of it you know, creating the atmosphere we have now at some of the MLS stadiums, which is, you know, pretty impressive. If you look back to the beginning where you were hoping, God, wouldn't it be great to go to a stadium and it felt like a stadium in South America or Europe? And, you know, we have that now. What do you think has enabled you and Soccer America to survive this long, so 1971 to now? And it seems like you guys are, you know, just as strong as ever, as ever before. What do you what do you think is is the key to that that strength? Um, probably one of the most important things was that we were um, acquired from by by Media Post by Ken Fadner, who's the, the owner of Media Post, um, with a lot of experience in online media, and we made the transition from being a weekly print magazine to our news e letters. So we came up with a way to deliver the news to our members and subscribers. Um, you know, in a very efficient, I think, and, and informative manner. And I think that's what basically enabled us to keep, you know, to keep going in this era where, um, you know, as anybody who follows the media knows, it's become extremely difficult to come up with a successful financial model. So we made that adjustment. Um, and that, to me, that was probably the, the key uh, I think the other one is, and this is the same in other media outlets. If you have a history of coverage, um, of serving, you know, whatever community is you, that, that's, that's part of what you cover. If you have a history of it, you have an advantage over say someone that comes out, you know, out of nowhere and starts from scratch. That's just kind of an advantage you have if you have that history and, and the reputation. In regards to being, uh, acquired by, by another company, does that, does that mean that you are, I'm trying to figure out the right way to ask this. Not independent, or do you? Does that place uh, additional restrictions on what you can or, or or can't say or can't cover? No, you know it's interesting. It's a great question because for a long time my boss was Clay Burling and and Lynn Burling Manuel, and um, and now uh, Ken Fadner at Media Post. And there's never in my 30 years or so has someone told me don't cover this because you're gonna you know 
it's not good for business or something like that. I mean, that's never happened. And anybody who's followed us closely knows that it's probably read Paul Gardner, who I think is one of the best soccer writers in, in history and, and um, never holds back and will criticize anything or everything that he thinks is not for the good of the game. And none of us have been ever told not to cover something or, or to, to, to hold back or something like that. So um, that's, that's, you know, I, I'm glad you asked me that because it reminds me how much I, I should appreciate that. No, it's uh it, it's something that we, or that I, that I kind of talk about quite a bit because I have the same freedom, I guess you can say with, with minor restrictions, but I can pretty much do or, or say whatever I want on my podcast. So I'm pretty happy to be able to do that and thankful every day that, you know, I get to make a living out of doing this. So it's, it's pretty rad. And I know that other people don't have that luxury. So I feel, feel I feel for those people. <laughs> yeah. Um, something I, I, I didn't anticipate uh, talking about with you, but you mentioned last week when we spoke on the phone privately was uh, you actually work with, uh, with, kids in your in your area so you're actually doing some type of coaching or work with an organization so i i think that that's important to highlight as well so i don't know if, if you can talk about or if you want to yeah no that. i'm glad you brought that up so for the last two years i've been working with soccer without borders which is a fantastic um program aimed at uh, recent immigrant children asylees and refugees um i think it's unique because it's not only an after school program but the teams also play in regular leagues um high school leagues or um us club leagues or usys leagues and uh so so yeah so i do and i referee before that i worked at uh i coached at east bay united bay oaks i coached my daughter for a long time uh, who's now in college so you know and i was a player too so i um i've always been involved in in soccer personally besides being a journalist which um has been very valuable to me, not just for story ideas. You know, refereeing is a fantastic way to to get a sense of what it's like to be a kid, you know, coaching kids, referee, all that kind of thing. But also it's a bit of a reprieve too, because sometimes I will, you know, you get a little bit, I don't know, jaded might be too strong a word, but, you know, there's all this stuff in soccer, all the crazy money, all the controversy. Uh, and then when you go out and you watch kids play or maybe you kick around with kids and all of a sudden everything sort of seems right with the soccer world where you see soccer the way you know at its best with people are having fun playing it and competing and and, and and being upset and being happy and you know that 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 to me is just a, a really enjoyable part of my life you get to see it at its purest form which is amazing well i really enjoy this what i really enjoy about the soccer borders kids is that their skill level is incredible a lot they're from all over the world but a, a, a lot of them grew up in refugee camps in in, in africa or asia uh, a lot of them come are came from uh, central american countries and very few of them were ever coached and their skill level is just absolutely incredible simply from playing which um you know kind of confirmed what my belief has always been that coaches are overrated when it comes to um, especially the the technical part of soccer, and that the, the the brilliant soccer comes when when kids play and explore it on their own terms. Absolutely correct. I I believe that. And I, I'm curious to get your reaction to to this because it's something that I've said publicly. I don't know how many times now, but I'm not a fan of 
programs. I'm not a fan of like inner city programs. I'm not a fan of, you know, initiatives and, and, and things like that, that are geared towards, um, you know, underserved communities and, and, and things like that, because a lot of times I feel they are a mask for other problems or, 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 um, things. It's a, it's an easier way than fixing the real problem. And so soccer without borders is a program and I think that it, it it hits the mark on on what it's trying to do, which is you know provide you know that that service to that that community. But I'm I'm just I, I'd be curious to get your reaction about you know my statement of you know we don't need more programs, we need more opportunities for for these young players that are that are kind of stuck in these these environments and these communities all across America that aren't being served by. Um, clubs or by MLS franchises or things like that, because those, those, yeah, those kids are just not being looked at. Yeah. Um, I, I guess there's two things. First of all, um, you know, when I first started coaching at soccer without borders, you know, I had this idea that if I saw like an incredibly talented player, uh, with my connections and perhaps I could introduce them to a club that would provide the pathway to the, to the highest level. And after I started coaching there for a while, I realized that um, the focus was more on just the well-being of that kid and make sure they're enjoying soccer. And the challenge of actually integrating them into the mainstream, um, I'm not saying it's impossible, but at, at that level, simple things like transportation make it impossible, you know. Um you know, we are able to get the kids to games and, and, and do whatever we can, but there is, it is a different world. The second thing I would say though, is that I don't know how much, you know, the, I, I know it's, it's easy to blame the U S soccer federation. And I, and I think there's certain things the U S soccer should be doing to make pathways more available but the challenge is how giant our country is. And um, if you look at Frankie Amaya, the number one draft pick for MLS, 18-year-old kid who also starred for the U-20s, he's an interesting example because he you know, grew up playing in the Latin Leagues um, and went to Patiadores, which is a mainstream development academy club. And that's how he, you know, that gave him the, the platform, that, that, that gave him the possibility to move up. But it was thanks to his proximity to that club and thanks to that club paying attention to those kids, right? So that was a success story. What I worry about is the Frankie Amaya who's three hours away from a club that could provide that for him. And to me, I don't have an easy answer for that, for for, for addressing that challenge, you know. Um, it's going to be very hard to make sure we never miss a kid. We should always try to. Um, on the other hand, we have in a place like Southern California, I believe enough talent to have a national team. I'm not saying we shouldn't pick kids from other areas, but you know, we have pockets around the country that have more talent, more, more numbers and potential talent than countries like Uruguay or Costa Rica, or, you know, that do well in the world cup sometimes. Um, so yeah, I mean, the, it's a different thing. The, 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 the programs in many ways, like soccer without borders are focused on helping kids navigate the, the, the challenges they face once they get here as immigrants or refugees and asylees and soccer does a, does a tremendous job for them 
and that's not necessarily related to um you know what you mentioned as far as moving these kids up to higher levels or pros and things like that so it's there's a lot of things going on there yeah absolutely and and when you mentioned frankie and then you know his his like rapid ascension from you know the you know being outside of the development academy network to being in the in, in the da and then number one draft pick it's like wow that's quite amazing and you look back at that most recent u17 world cup roster and you're like well, where was frankie like he's, he, he would have been right. Like he should have been right there. And then you look at other guys like Alex Mendez and, and Uli Yanez and, and kind of their rapid ascension. Uh, and it's like, well, yeah, but all, all LA I, kids. Right. But I, that's the other thing, the national team. I mean, that's a small group of players, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, it's, and it's hard to say, I can't say whether it's right to criticize the Federation for Frankie not having been on that U17 because ultimately his pathway worked. And, you know, it's, um, I think, I think it's more important not to focus. I think there's been some progress in the Federation expanding the U14 pool. Um, you know, in, in, in the old days where you had Bradenton and you had a, a small group of players, 20 or 30 players uh, who were the core of the U-17s in a country this big or any country um, is a bit problematic because you can't just you got to track a thousand kids. Right. Or two thousand kids of that age group um, because they're going to change over year by year. You know, kids of any age change year by year and and you can't predict perfectly their potential or anything so i think it's all about you know having a big of a pool as you can and the talent you know funnels up to the top and hopefully in in a type of competition that that suits their um you know their potential and and i think the important issue there is getting back to the the latin type of soccer which is so successful all over the world and needs to be embraced in the United States by its coaches has to some extent, but not um, to the extent that I think it, it should be um, because it's a successful type of soccer. You know, you have a community, it's not the only community, but it's one of the communities where you constantly have kids who play on their own, you know, um, and who have that sort of technical type of, of play that is again, the, the most successful in the world. Yeah. I- I guess my uh, my last comment was more or, or was less directed at, at Frankie specifically and more of like a general statement like the U17, most most recent U17 World Cup roster didn't have a single player from California and, and kind of just highlighting the fact that you said like, I believe too that, you know, if Los Angeles had a national team, if that was, you know, if that was actually a thing, I think it would be a powerhouse. Not, not- yeah, no, I think that I, I think we should regionalize things more. They did that a little bit with the U14s. Um, and and they used to do it in the old days with the Olympic festivals and stuff. But you know, I would have the Florida area, the Southern California area, the Northwest. You know, have everybody come up with national teams to a certain age, <laughs> and then bring them together and go from there. You know, fun. to take to, to to take teenage kids, to kids in their young teens, right? Um, and for them to climb the ladder, it, to have to fly all over the place to play. Why not just focus on those areas? Again, look at Uruguay, you know, yep. <laughs> a country of three million, uh, with that produces world class players and world class teams, um, and they don't have to worry about 
flying, you know, 500 miles or 3000 miles to put together a team. So I think that I, I do think that there's a strong case to be made to, to regionalization and to stop wasting, you know, time and money on, on travel up to a certain age when, when, when you start, uh, you know, when it, when it becomes more important that you have a national team. We're, uh, we're five minutes over time already from, from what I asked you for, but I want to ask you one more question that I ask everybody in every interview. Is that all right? Sure. Okay. Um, what do people need to know? And I, and I know that's a broad question, so I'm going to talk for a second, give you, give you a second to think about it. But, um, it's interesting. I've asked probably, you know, over a hundred people that, that question now, and it, it's a huge wide array of answers from coaches, players, parents, everything. So, um, you know, if, if you had, had to get like one message out there to to American soccer fans, players, coaches, whatever. What do you think people need to know at this moment? I think one of the biggest issues in American soccer has been the you know the professionalizing or the the intensifying of the youth soccer experience at the youngest ages when it should be about kids playing as much as possible and having as much fun as possible. And the sort of pre-academy, pre-pre-academy, you know, there'll be a prenatal academy soon. Um, <laughs> I don't think that that's conducive to producing the messies of the world. You know, I think coaching has its role, um, but I'm pretty sure most coaches would agree with me if you brought them a player who's who's technically, you know, excellent, but maybe tactically doesn't isn't so sharp or maybe um you know i think that you can teach the tactics and and you can teach the passing if you have a great dribbler you can teach that dribble how to pass i don't think you can teach a teenager how to dribble and so i think that we need to focus on the kids playing in an almost pickup like manner um when they're first being introduced to the game and you know up until whatever age you know when you want to think it's you want to be more structured at, at, at 10 or 11 or whatever but if you don't have these highly technical players then i don't think we're gonna get to where we want to get which is to be a world power in soccer it's refreshing to hear you say that man um where uh where can people find more about the work that you do can actually where can they find your work and and where can they connect with you if they if they want to uh if they want to follow follow you uh, a little bit more closely yeah, SoccerAmerica.com, uh, SoccerAmerica.com, and then uh, I am at Mike Waitala on Twitter. All right, perfect. I'll link to both of those in the show notes. Um, anything that we that we didn't get into that you that you anticipated talking about or wanted to talk about today? No, that was great. I really enjoyed it. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you for listening to another episode of the 343 podcast. And a big thank you to our sponsor, Bounce Athletics. I also want to leave you with one note from one of our members of the 343 coaching education program. His name is Thomas, and he's been a member for quite a while. And this is what he had to say. If you want to play insanely good with your team and start to understand the possession and positional game, this will give you a head start. I have tried the material on three ordinary teams, and after a year, they totally dominate the local teams. After two years, they are among the best in the region. 
the program 343 offers is not a complicated curriculum. It's actually simpler than you might think. But instead of more, you have to go deep in every detail. Thomas, thank you so much for that beautiful review. And I hope that everybody else finds that valuable. If you want more information about the 343 Coaching Education Program, the program that helps support and fund this podcast, you can visit 343coaching.com. All right, we'll catch you guys next time here on the podcast. Thank you so much for listening.